We've been learning about renewing the mind. It's really part of the series we've been doing for some time now about spiritual warfare and out of Ephesians 10. And one of the pieces of warfare, of, of, of armor that we're to put on, verse, uh, Ephesians 6, verse 17, is to put on the helmet of salvation. And the word helmet does not necessarily literally mean a, a metal helmet. It means something wrapped around your mind, literally. And it means to, to put it on, it literally means to receive something. There's, some, there's, a, there's a Greek word that's used for take up, and that's, that's, that's a different word. This word literally means to receive something that God has given to us. And, of course, it's our salvation. And salvation, the word for salvation means far more than just not going to hell and a, and a, and a pass to get into heaven. If that's all it meant, I'm not complaining. But it means so much more because God is a God of so much more. And so we've been looking at this process from a very practical point of view because we've discovered that, that the reason it's so important to renew our mind, because Ephesians, or Hebrew, Romans 12, 2 tells us that we are transformed, we're changed by the renewing of our mind. And that verse tells us two things. First of all, we are not to be conformed to this world. The word conformed there means to be pressured on the outside to look like something that you're not. It's the same word that would be used to make an imprint on a coin. So you would take a piece of copper or brass or bronze in that day, and they would have a press that they would squeeze down on it, and it would form the image of the emperor's face or something like that. So they would take a piece of metal, and they would make it look like an image on the outside through pressure. And that's what all the pressures of life are designed to do to you and me, to make us feel so pressured, so overwhelmed, so afraid, so defeated, so needy that we begin to react like the world does in those situations so that regardless of the kingdom of God is inside of you, nobody can tell that because we look, think, and talk, and act like the world does. So if the enemy couldn't keep you from getting saved, his next his fallback strategy is to keep you from affecting anybody else with your salvation, including you. And so that's what it tells we're not to do. If he says not to do it, that means it's possible for us to not be conformed to this world. But you can't just do it on the negative. You've got to do the next part of it, which he says, but what we are to do is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The word transformed is a very different word. It means to take what you're really like on the inside and work it to the outside. So now we have an understanding why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say earn your salvation with fear and trembling he doesn't say do good deeds with fear and trembling because if you might not get your salvation what he says is to take what you've received and work it to the outside with reverence for what the process is and what's how important it is so we've been looking at that and so we're looking at this process of renewing the mind and how important our thinking understanding our thinking processes are because the proverb says you are what you think not just what you eat your body is what you eat that was popular. But, you're, but you, are, you are in your life what you think. So this word of God is God's vision of who he's made you to be and the future he has for you. That's why Paul writes in several places, but the most powerful one is in Ephesians chapter 1. His prayer is that God would open the eyes of our understanding, open the eyes of our understanding, not his understanding. He already understands it. Open the eyes of our understanding so we could see what is the hope of his calling for our life that's in Christ Jesus. That means there's a hope, there's a part of our salvation we haven't seen yet, which is consistent with with 2 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses, one, uh, verses one, 9 and 10, which says, Eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, nor has it entered the hearts of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. 
But it goes on to say, but they're revealed to us by the Spirit. So God has an inheritance for you. He has a hope for you, a calling for you, a life for you, a level of life for you and I that we're only just beginning to tap into. And what limits us from receiving it is our understanding. The image we have of us and the image we have of God. Because you can't squeeze into your spirit anything bigger than what your mind will let through it. Now Jesus talked about, you know, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Yeah, it's harder for God to get his vision of you and me through the little opening we give him through our pea brain. But the good news is, God's told us what his thoughts are. Isaiah 55 says, your thoughts are not my your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways are, are higher than your ways. As high as the sky is above the earth, that's how much higher my ways are than your ways. But he's given us a book that contains his thoughts towards us. So it's, we are without excuse. That means it's incumbent upon us to get into this book and discover what his thoughts are. Now, there are many people out there, Christians, well-meaning Christians, that believe, you know, whatever happens in your life is God's will. So what we need to do to be a good Christian is learn to accept whatever happens. The problem with that is it's not scriptural. There are things we do need to accept, like the will of God. (laughs) But there are a lot of things that happen in our life because there is an enemy of our soul out there. And, and that whole philosophy just ignores him. Jesus didn't ignore him. Jesus was tempted by him, and he didn't ignore him. He says, you don't exist, you don't exist, you don't exist. He spoke to him. Not only that, he brought deliverance and healing to a number of people by dealing with demonic demon spirits that had been sent by Satan. Those must have been real, because otherwise he was just talking religious talk. So it ignores that. But the other aspect of responsibility that 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 philosophy has, it ignores there's a responsibility on us to get in here and conform our mind, our thinking processes, to what God, the way God thinks, because He's given us His thoughts so that we can learn to think them. But that requires effort and therefore responsibility on us. Now in, in Romans chapter... My mind is sharp tonight. In John chapter 8, around verse 32, Jesus makes us astounding. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you shall be my disciple and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Now, there are people out there saying that the truth will set you free. That's, that, it's true. But the only truth that will set you free is the truth you know. There are people, the, the truth is, it's God's will to heal. But there are many people out there in the world tonight that are sick. It's God's will to save. But there are people going to hell tonight. Is that because it's not God's will? No, it's because they don't know His will. They don't know the truth. So although the truth has the potential to set them free, because they don't know it, it doesn't work in their lives. But you're going to only know the truth by abiding in His Word. By spending time in His Word and letting His Word abide in you. That does not happen by casual reading. And that's what we've been learning. So the process that we're learning to do is we've come to an understanding of the way our mind works. 
that, you, that your mind, you are controlled by images that have been burned into your mind. Images of who you are, what you're like, what you can do, what you can't do. It's amazing. I'll, I'll still sometimes hear, not physically hear, but remember voices from my childhood. Saying, well, you, you, you can't do that. You'll never be able to do that. And that was, you know, I was six years old. I'm, I'm, I'm no longer six years old. Or 26, or 36, or 46. We'll stop there. Um, give a little, a little margin for people's imagination there. All right? But, but the point is this. That's still affecting me. But the good news is, and I've taught you, the only place that image exists is between this ear and this ear. What was true in my childhood is not true anymore. But if it's still real in my mind, it's going to govern me. We've got a great example in in the Gospels when Jesus told his disciples to go to the other side. They get in the boat. He's up on the mountain praying. And a storm comes up. He sees them struggling out in the storm. And you've heard me say before, these were professional uh, fishermen, which means they were professional sailors, and they were afraid that they were going to drown. And Jesus comes to them by night walking on the water. And I guarantee you, in all their years of being out on that water, they'd never seen a man walking on the water. And we know it because they said it must be a ghost and they're even now more afraid. They're more afraid of the ghost that they see than they are of the storm. Because storms they were used to. Ghosts walking on the water they weren't used to. And Peter gets bold and says, and says Jesus says, don't be afraid, it is I. And Peter says, well, if it's you, bid me to come. So Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, we talked about that before, and he walked on the water. He, he did. He walked on the water. I've told you, when they take a roll call in heaven, of people that have walked on water, it's not going to take a long time to answer it. Because there weren't many so far. So he walked on the water, but at some point... He got his eyes off of Jesus and his eyes off of the word come. And he began to notice where he was. I don't know about you, but I've been there. I've been in play, not walking on water, but I've been out ahead of where I thought I could be. And I've been out there and suddenly you realize, wait a minute, I can't do this. That's what happened to Peter. He got out there and suddenly realized where he was. And his mind kicks in, you can't do this. And yet he was doing it. But see, even though he was doing it, he cannot stick with something that's beyond his image of himself. Weightlifters will tell you that. They have to build their mental picture of what they can lift up, lift, before their body can lift it. And there are many cases of weightlifters that have accidentally lifted more than they've lifted before. So they know in their mind, I can do this because I did it last week. When they go to put that new pounds on, and they can't do it because their image of what they can do hasn't caught up with what they're actually capable of doing. That's the process of dieting. It begins by changing your image of yourself. Because if you see yourself as fat and ugly, I'm not looking at anybody, If you see yourself as fat and ugly, then you can say I'm thin all you want, but you're going to react to yourself based on what you feel about yourself, whether that's the truth or not. That's 
epidemic among teenage girls. Is I got to, I'm not thin enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not thin enough. And they're about that big around. But the image they have of themselves is what's controlling. So we've learned that an image is what controls us. But we don't stop there. We found out what, where does that image come from? It comes, that, excuse me, that stronghold. That's a stronghold. A stronghold is made up of an image that's been there long enough that it's embedded in the screen of your mind. And an image is made up of thoughts. And we've used the example of your TV screen, which is nothing more than a series of dots, like a newspaper picture is nothing more than a series of dots. So the image in your mind is a series of thoughts that your mind has, has it's entered into your mind, and your mind has assembled them together to form an image. And if that image is there long enough, it becomes a stronghold. So the process we're learning is you can't go back and erase that, because the more attention you pay to it, the more you add to it. Instead, what we're, going to, we're learning to do is to form a new image that's based on the Word of God, and when that gets formed long enough, that creates a new stronghold, and as you begin to react to that new, respond to that new stronghold, the old one will gradually fade away, and the new one will overtake it. And so we're learning a technique to do that, and that's that instead of rambling, randomly taking thoughts that come into your mind, which is what we have been doing, is to purposefully, intentionally, with, 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 with intention of forethought, picking dots, picking thoughts, planting them in our mind based on the new image that we want. And I've shared with you the reason this is more powerful, that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God for the pulling down of these strongholds because we're taking the word of God. It's anointed to do this. It is the truth, and the truth is always more powerful than the lie. So you may have been a turkey all your life, but now you're a child of God. Nobody may have ever liked you or accepted you. You may have been the last pick for every ball team, or if you were even picked at all. You may have been the runner of the litter. You may have been laughed at your whole life. But the Bible says... God says about you, I chose you before the foundation of the world. And you are accepted in Christ. And God says, I don't make mistakes and you didn't fool me. So now it's this battle. All my life I've seen I was nothing. I'll never amount to anything. I'm worthless. I'm a failure. And now God's saying these things about me. What we're doing is I'm going to intentionally take His thoughts about me and I'm going to plant those in my mind on purpose, consistently, diligently. And as I do that, my mind begins to take those thoughts and form a new image of me. And if I'll do it long enough, that image begins to become a stronghold that overpowers the stronghold that was embedded in me as a child. Because this is the truth. And that's the process we're in. So last week we began to get into, or we continue to get into the first one, which was meditation. I'm not going to go back through all those things. But meditation is basically talking to yourself, muttering to yourself. It's running the scriptures over and over in your mind. And I gave you on the screen, and we put some uh, uh, handouts out on the on, on the. Uh, 
uh, information booths about just five or six steps you can go through. And if you just do any of those, you will be meditating on the Word. It's not just reading it. It's thinking about what you're reading. I've been blessed this week because I've had several people come to me and say, It works. And that's just in a week. It actually works. See, the things I'm teaching you, I did not read in a book. The things I'm teaching you, God taught me because I had some major strongholds that I needed to overcome. And I'm still working on parts of them. And God taught me how to do this. So I'm teaching you something. I'm not gotten out of a book. I know it works because it's working in my life. And it will work in your life. Okay. Now we're going to go on to the second one. I don't remember if we started this or not. Did we start it? Okay. Again, none of these are ones you haven't heard of before. But we're going into detail because instead of just telling you to meditate, we're teaching you how to do it. The second one is confession. And I want to lay a foundation for this because these are, again, things we already have heard about and you have pre- whatever you've heard about, you already have a preconceived idea of what it means and what we're talking about. This is similar to meditation, but it's different. And both of these are important. What is it? Well, it's interesting. I looked this up years ago. You know, I've got a, an old Webster's Unabridged Collegiate Dictionary. It's about that thick. makes a great paperweight. And I went through there and looked up the word confession. And one of the meanings way down the list is to adopt as your own. Now, think about that a second. Because the way where most of us were raised, especially many of you in church, is it was all about confessing your sins. So confession did not imply to you something exciting to do. It may be something you've got to do on a Saturday afternoon or wherever, but you know, you've got to go bring your dirty laundry in front of somebody or in front of God, and it means, you know, fess up. But you stop and think about it. If the word means to adopt as your own, aren't you, isn't that really what you're saying? I did it. I remember as a little boy, we were playing baseball in the backyard. And, and one of us, I've forgotten which one it was, uh, accidentally threw the ball over one of our heads through a window. And I still remember, it must have been me. <laughs> That's why I remember it. <laughs> and I remember standing in front of my mother and she's saying, who did it? And of course, the temptation is to go, that starts in Genesis chapter 3, by the way, where, where the man said, I don't know who's responsible, I just know it's not me. Because basically saying, there's three of us here, I just know it's not me. Because what he says is, it's the woman you gave me. <laughs> so uh, you figure it out, I just know, I, I'm just standing by here. I didn't do this. And so, so but, but as I've taught you before, confession is the door to freedom. Because God is a God of grace and mercy. He forgives sin, but He only forgives the sin we acknowledge we committed. So if I'm standing there looking at my mother and say, it's my brother Tom did it, then she's going to forgive Tom. Because he's the one that supposedly did it. So I'm not getting the release of the guilt because I know I did it. So confession is when I accept the responsibility I did it. So in the negative sense, confession is accepting ownership of what I did. A foreign concept in the world today. 
the government's fault. It's my, you know, my, it's my, it's my ethnic bringing up. It's my family. It's, you know, I didn't get enough privileges growing up. Well, it's, it's anything but my responsibility. But deliverance and freedom come from accepting responsibility for what I'm responsible for. And so, in the first sense, the most common sense that we're used to dealing with the word confession, it literally means to accept ownership of something. I, I took ownership of this. I did it. So, or owning up to something. But there's another aspect of confession that you don't think of so often, and that's a positive aspect to confession. We use it all the time, we just don't always think of it in those terms. It's to confess or acknowledge something that's yours. Well, I just thought of this. Kids understand this. Because you put a bunch of kids together with some toys. For instance, you know, you invite little Johnny and Susie over to your house and you've got, you know, a couple of kids and you let them loose with their toys. Pretty soon they're going to start making confessions. It's mine. That's my toy. That's my dog. That's a confession. It's mine. It belongs to me. And they're very outspoken with their declaration of what belongs to them. But we get spiritual and we are reluctant to do that. And yet the principle still works the same. So the other aspect of this word means to accept ownership of something that's been given to you. Yes, that's mine. Now, if it isn't mine, confessing it doesn't make it mine. But if it, it has been given to me, when I declare it's mine, I'm acknowledging I, it's now a gift. I now own it. Thank you very much. I appreciate this gift. It is now Mine, but if somebody gives you a nice gift and you say, oh no, oh, I don't deserve that, oh, oh no, you haven't really accepted it until with your mouth you acknowledge, thank you, that is mine, I acknowledge it now belongs to me. Is everybody following me along? It'll become very clear now. Okay, now turn with me to, John, to Romans chapter 10. We're talking about confession, what it is, because I don't want to just say do it, without giving you an understanding of what it is. Romans 10. Now, in Romans 9, Paul has been talking about the Jews. I mean, up through chapter 8, he's talking about this wonderful doctrine that Jesus revealed to him, that we are saved by faith, not by our works, not by works or by obeying the law and keeping the law. We're saved by believing what Christ did for us. And then he talks in chapter 9 about the Jews, the, his, his, his natural heritage, and talks about, about where they stand and tells us not to get so puffed up because God's brought salvation to us because he says they were the natural branch. We've been grafted in. He says if God can graft us in, he can bring the natural branch alive. And then in chapter 10, he talks about them, and it begins with that. And it's worthwhile going back, because we sometimes just jump into these verses. Verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. That was Paul's heart. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That's a little side lesson there. Zeal's not enough. And knowledge is not enough. It takes zeal that's based on knowledge. So they were zealous for God and still are today, the the, the devout ones are, but it's without knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of God's plan. Verse 3, 
for being ignorant of God's righteousness. Then that's not saying they're ignorant that God's righteous, that they don't know God's righteous. They're talking about God's method of communicating righteousness to us. So they're ignorant of God's way of making us righteous. Why? Because they're still trying to achieve righteousness by obeying the law, which is impossible to keep. Everybody with me? Seeking to establish their own righteousness, they've not submitted to the righteousness of God. That's an interesting choice of words that Paul's used there, or the Holy Spirit has used. Submitted. Because, you know, I first read this, well, you know, what we've been given is the easy way, they have the hard way. So, but see, what he's saying is, that never works. Romans 8 says, that when you're walking by the flesh, which is trying to earn your righteousness by your flesh, you're at enmity or hostility against God, for you're not submitted to the law. Indeed, he says, you're not able to. But we're trying to do it in our own strength, because what the root of that is, I'm trying to do it myself. So I can get some credit. I know, God, you're doing most of it, but I'm going to add my two cents. And my two cents will ruin the whole thing. For being ignorant of God's right, God's method that He's ordained for making us righteous, seeking, look at this, to establish their own. This is what flesh wants to do. Flesh wants to establish its own righteousness. So we can get credit and be in control of it. Therefore, to receive a free gift requires us to submit to something that's against our flesh. Because we don't get any credit for it. We can't throw our head back and say, look what I've done because we haven't done anything good. It's a free gift. And Romans 4, he talks about if it's, a, if it's earned, then it's not a gift. It's a wages. But if it's a gift, then by definition, it's not earned. It's free. And you can't have it both ways. And he's saying the Jews can't receive it, although they've got zeal, because they're trying to do it without humbling themselves and admitting they can't do it on their own, and they can't make it on their own. The only way they're going to do it is to receive a free gift of God's grace, which runs against our pride. That's why pride gets in the way of being saved. That's how we have to humble ourselves. Not by saying, oh, it's such a dirty mess I am. No, humbling myself is saying, I can't do it. And guess what? Just because you're saved doesn't mean you can now do it on your own either. Verse 4, For Christ is the end or the fulfillment or the completion of the law for righteousness. In other words, He, in Him, that righteousness is fulfilled when, we jo- when we're joined to Him. Because He perfectly kept the law. So what happens is because He perfectly kept the law, when you come to Christ, you're joined to Him, so you're now joined to one who perfectly kept the law. So what He's done is attributed to you. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. But it doesn't end there. In Him. In Him, we become the righteousness of God. We're not the righteousness of God way out there on our own, doing our own thing. It's in Him we're the righteousness of God, because He is the righteousness of God. So it's because you're in Him that you're the righteousness of God. Just like Noah and his family floated through the flood. 
Not because they were good swimmers. Well, that's a good example. Not because they could tread water for 40 days. They got through the flood because of what they were in. They made it through the storm which was designed to destroy anything that was unrighteous. They didn't make it through because they were righteous. They made it through because they humbled themselves and got in the boat. And Christ is the ark. So it always takes is humbling myself to admit I can't tread water forever. So I need to get in the boat that will float above the storm. So it's because you're in Christ that you're righteous. It's not because God looked down, found you where you were in your bedroom and says, you know what, I'm just going to make them righteous. No, it's because he allowed you to come into Christ who is righteous and be joined to him. Now that's why Paul says, so put him on. He doesn't say, act like him at a distance. We're to put him on because we're in him. That'll preach, but I'm not going to go to him. Okay. For Christ is the end, the fulfillment of the, of the law for righteousness. Notice that, to whoever believes, whoever gets in the boat. For Moses writes about the righteousness which was of the law, that the man who does those things shall live by them. This is why we went through all this. For the righteousness of faith speaks this way. Notice it talks a certain way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, we're talking about salvation. We don't have to do something by which we call Christ down out of heaven to do something for us. And we don't call him up out of the abyss where he had gone to bring him up to do something. That's done with. He's already been down there and he's been raised up there. So we don't have to call him from either of those places. Why? Oh, this is good. Verse 8. But what does it say? The Word is near you. How near is it me? In my mouth and in my heart. So when people come forward, or as I did in my living room, and cried out to Him, the floor didn't open up, and smoke come up out of the floor, the, 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 the roof open up, and a cloud come down out of heaven the way it did in the Old Testament and rest on the mountain. Nothing came from above or beneath. Where, where did it come from? The Word is near you. How near is it, God? It's in your mouth and in your heart. It's ready to be released as soon as I open my mouth. It's not just believing in my heart. There's something I've got to do with my mouth to receive it as mine. Remember what confession is? It's accepting ownership of something. 
And that must be done with the mouth, according to God's word. So the very process by which you received the free gift of salvation required you to hear the word of God, believe what you heard, but that was not enough. There are people that come in here Sunday after Sunday that hear the word of God, believe the word of God, and walk back out that door just as lost as they were when they came in. For months and months and months when God was working on me, I heard the word of God. I believed what I heard, but I was too proud and stubborn to open my mouth and receive a free gift. It had to be more complicated than that. So God in his mercy broke through this thick German skull. Because it had to get through the skull to get into the heart. The word is near you in your mouth and your heart. The word of faith which we preach. And what is it? Verse 9. That if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Confession. Believing in your heart is, well, it's belief. It's believing in something. But believing something's not enough. There's a difference between belief and faith. Now, the words in Greek are very similar, but in the concept they are. And you've heard me use it. It was not my example. It was, I got this from another teacher years ago, but it's, it's so powerful. Is that we could have somebody come down here, stubble, fall down, and, and just pass out. We can sit him on a chair, and we've got some nurses in here. My wife's a nurse. They check him out and say, this, this guy's in the throes of the last throes of starvation. We just, you know, we can't, and we say, we can't have that happen here. Not at Faith Christian Center. We can't have somebody die of starvation. The church that loves building, and somebody dies here of starvation. We've got to do something about that. Well, we've got some food left over in the, in the, in the, in the fellowship hall. You know, let's get some people from the hospitality. Go over, they fix this nice thing, and they spread it out in front of this guy. And we, he's standing there, and he's sitting there and just kind of looking like this. And, and I say, sir, I, let me ask you a question. You see this food? He says, yes, yes, thank you very much. Uh, do you believe that eating this food will keep you from starving to this? Oh, oh, yes, I believe that. Do you believe that with all your heart? Oh, I absolutely believe that with all my heart. Are you sure? you? Yes, I believe that with all my heart. I believe that that's what would happen if I ate it. And he falls over to the food, dead. Let me ask you a question. Did what he, was what he believed not true? It was absolutely true, wasn't it? Well, why did he die? He never acted on what he believed. When you act on it, you are now, you are now actively accepting that it is yours. Because you won't act on something you don't believe is yours. But there are what, you know, acting on that required him to eat it. But there are many things you can't eat to act on. The only way you can act on it is to open your mouth and acknowledge that it's yours. And the thought goes through my mind, but, but I, I'm lying if I don't see it. No, no, no. See, because you're just acting like God. Because Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 17, says, in, in, it says that, uh, got to start at the beginning. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. From God's side, I've made you a father of many nations. At that point, he was 75 years old. 
had no children, his wife was barren, and they were both too old. Three strikes against them. And God says, as far as I'm concerned, I've made you a father. Not I'm going to. As far as I'm concerned, I've made you a father of many nations. Here, God says back when Jesus hung on that cross, as far as I'm concerned, your sins are paid for. As far as I'm concerned. But there's another side to the transaction. You have to receive that gift. Just as, as far as we were concerned, this man didn't have to starve to death. But he had something he had to do. And so, God said, as far as I'm concerned, Abraham, you're the father, not of a son, of many nations. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls things that be not as though they were. What does God do? God calls things as into existence that don't exist when He calls them. God does that. Well, pastor, that would be lying. Then God's a liar. How did God create the universe? He said before there was. It says, let there be, and then it says there was. So God releases His faith by declaring something is true. And then it becomes true. We want to see it true and then with our mouth agree with what we see. But faith doesn't work that way. See, what faith is doing is it's calling something that already exists in the spirit realm into this realm of existence. That's what God did. And He made us in His image. Gave us His authority. Now, Adam turned and gave it away, but Jesus came and bought it back for the church. Turn with me to Hebrews. Chapter 3. Chapter 2 just describe what he did. Therefore, brethren, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. Some translations will say profession. That word in Greek is homologia, which literally means to agree with what's been said. And I was looking that word up today, and it's even broader than that. It means to agree with what's been said with the same intent, uh, this intent to have the same result. So if, if Brendan says, you know, what we're, you know, Pastor John, would you come with me tomorrow? Because what we're going to do is we're going to go, you know, I've got to put this uh, jungle gym or something together in the back of my yard. Would you come help me? And I say, yeah, I will. So I said, we're going to put that together. So we've now agreed, we've made a confession together, this is what we're going to do. What we've done is together we've agreed on accomplishing the same result. That's what that word means. So God's declared His intention of His result. And what He's looking for us to, us to open our mouth and with our mouth agree with all what He's already declared He's done. 
So we're not talking God into doing something. He's talking us into agreeing with what He's already said. Now, if you come up with something on your own you want Him to do, that's a different matter. But we know if He's promised it in here, it's His will. That's why you've got to learn to find the promises of God and take those promises and don't just read them and believe them, but you've got to begin to speak them out. This is one of the things that's lacking in so many of us. Why we struggle in areas, because we'll meditate, we'll study, and we say, why isn't it working? Because we're not releasing it with our mouth. Now, you don't go around at work and open your big mouth and say, you know, I have a yacht, I have whatever, you know. You've got to use wisdom. Okay? But you can talk to yourself. You're in your car, you can say things. You can sure say them back to the devil when he says it's never going to amount to anything. So what I want you to see, first of all, is one method of confession is simply acknowledging that you've done something wrong. Another is declaring something, and by doing it, you're calling it into existence. See, that's strange to many of us. But how can I call it into existence? I mean, I'm just a person. No, you're not just a person. You're a child of the living God. A joint heir with Christ. Join to Him. You are one with Him. Jesus told His disciples at the end of Matthew's Gospel, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. You go forth. Now, do you think those are separate concepts? I got all authority in heaven and earth. Now, you guys go do it. You guys go tell. But I'm keeping the authority here. Because it's my authority. You You know what that's like? That's like being put in a position where you're given a responsibility, but not the authority. That's unfair. That's unrighteous. To expect you to do something, but not give you the authority to carry it out. That's like sending soldiers out on the front line to defend the general, but don't give them any guns. That would just outright wrong. What's wrong to give somebody a, th- a responsibility and not give them the authority to carry that out? But that's what we've seen. We walk around saying, we're responsible to share the gospel. We're responsible to win the lost. But, oh, all that authority died with the apostles. They had it because they didn't have the Word of God. We now have the Word of God, yet, well, you need to read it. So when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, you go and make disciples. He's saying that authority is available to you to go make disciples. But you won't operate in it if you don't believe it's yours. Luke 10, Jesus told the 70, not the 12, not the apostles of the Lamb that we talk about, 70, and we don't know the names of almost all of them. They didn't write books that we know about that are in the canon of the Bible. They're just believers like you and me. And he says, Behold, I give you authority to tread on Satan, serpent to Satan, and all the power of the enemy, so that nothing shall in any way harm you. I give it to you. And, and, and we know it works, because when he said it, they'd already come back, saying, 
Woo! It worked! Demons had to come out in your name. Say, well, I've tried that. Well, they didn't, and it didn't work. Well, they didn't try it. They did it. Did you believe it was going to happen? Or were you trying it because so-and-so said it works? So you've got to make the word yours. You can't do it because I've said so, Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth, or somebody. You can't do it because they said so. You've got to do it because this word has become part of you. Ask the seven sons of Sceva. If you don't know the story, they'd follow Paul around and they'd seen Paul cast out demons in the name of Jesus. So they thought, hey, we can do that too. Seven sons. So they found a demoniac, a guy possessed with demons, and they, you know, they said, in the, na- in the name of Paul, Jesus who Paul preaches. See, that's the way a lot of us think. In the name of Jesus who Brother Hagen preaches. In the name of Jesus who Kenneth Copeland preaches. In the name of Jesus who, you know, Fred Price. In the name of Jesus who I've heard about through somebody else. In the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out! Well, they came out all right. And the demon, demon says, Jesus we know, and Paul we know. Who are you? And it says the demon jumped on the seven sons, stripped them naked, and they went off screaming. Because they tried to exercise an authority that had not become part of them yet. If it's not working, ask God why. Don't say, well, I, just, I guess it won't work for me. Ask God why, because there's a reason. Well, we're going to stop here tonight. We'll pick up here next time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Father. Your word's the truth. Your word's the truth. Your word is the truth. Your word is the truth. Your word is the truth. Not what I feel. Not what I experience. Your word is the truth. You cannot lie. Your word is the truth. You've given your authority to the church. Father, we've been timid and we've not, we've not wanted to open our mouth and release what you've given us with our mouth or we've released it without believing. Forgive us, Lord, but teach us. We want to learn. We want to grow. We want to take our place for we are here to represent your kingdom, to bring down strongholds to do the works that you did and greater works you told us we are to do. For we are your body and your body has the same authority that the head has. Your hands, your feet have the same authority that the head has. And we are your body. We are your representatives for your kingdom to do your kingdom's work in this earth at this time. And you've not only given us the responsibility, you've given us the authority that you walked in. Teach us how to release that authority. Teach us how to release and receive with the words of our mouth. To talk like our Father. To talk the way you talked. You spoke to things. You commanded them to do things. And they listened to you. And they obeyed you. Elijah wasn't even born again. Wasn't filled with the Spirit of God at the time. But it was a like man just as we are. 
Yet he spoke to the weather and it changed. It didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he spoke again and the skies opened and it rained. Father, open our eyes. Lord Jesus, open our eyes to see the power that you've given to us in words. Father, forgive us also because many times we've used those words against one another. We've used those words against ourselves. We've even used those words against you and against the things of God. Forgive us, Father. Have mercy on us. Open the eyes of our understanding that we would truly see the calling and the hope of that calling that you've given to us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your mercy and grace, Father, tonight.